super excited about our new series. Uh, it, now, this series, Villain, we're going to explore the bad guys um, of the Bible, and it's reminiscent to our Fierce series that we did last summer. Fierce is where we looked at uh, stories of women, courageous women, women of bravery in the Bible, and uh, we're kind of doing that again, but exploring instead uh, some of the bad guys. Now, uh, when I, I moved to California in 1989 from Illinois, I was nine years old, and I started a new school, Drive Creek Elementary, the same school where my son will be starting kindergarten in the fall. And I, as I, as I you know, register him to school and I'm, I'm back on my old stomping grounds, uh, I, I think of my recess times, the games I play, the people I play with, and the people I try to avoid. We all had villains or bullies in our own elementary schools. I had one. His name was Benny. And he's the typical 80s, like, movie teenage villain, okay? You, you know what I'm saying? Like, like, he was a rich kid. Not that that's his fault, but he was. Uh, he had Z Cavaricci jeans. Does anybody remember Z Cavaricci jeans, okay? Uh, he had Dracar Noir cologne. Um, also, he had Obsession by Calvin Klein. Like, these were amazing in 1990. Um, and he had ugly sunglasses that made him look so cool. Uh, but on top of all that, he was me. Those were all reasons I didn't like him. But he was me. He was a bully. He picked on me. He was a villain. He drank from elementary from 1989 to 1994. Uh, and, uh, Ten years ago, my wife Sarah and I went to my 10-year high school reunion in 2009, and uh, I struck up a conversation by old butt, bully Penny. And uh, me and Benny started talking, and it's just amazing some of the things that he was saying uh, about his life now, and some things that God's done, and put things in perspective for him. And uh, next Saturday is my 20-year high school reunion. And uh, we're going, and I look forward to talking to Benny. And it's amazing that God can work in villains, like do something good and positive in their own lives. But it's also amazing that he works through them and speaks to us and teaches us in our own lives. And that's what the series is about. And our first bad guy that we're going to be looking at, he was kind of a big deal, like, like king of the world kind of big deal. Okay, like the most powerful man on earth, uh, that kind of thing. And his name was Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Uh, and he lived from 605 to 562. Uh, that's when he, he ruled much of the, the known world. And I love that we're tackling Nebuchadnezzar first, because we're just coming off of this Jonah series. And it's fitting that we go to Nebuchadnezzar first, because... Uh, as we studied Jonah, we looked at the city of Nineveh, the Assyrians, they were on top of the world. It is Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon that comes and destroys Assyria, and destroys Nineveh, uh, not long after. And so, uh, the Bible talks a lot about him. Before we get to what the Bible says, because he was such a big historical figure, we're going to look at some extra-biblical sources. Um, sources, historical documents that are not a part of the Bible, that let us a little bit in on who this person was. Uh, quite a bit is written about him beyond the Bible. His father was king of Babylon, and his, the first mention of his son, Nebuchadnezzar, it, it is him rebuilding the temple of Marduk in Babylon. 
that he's just a, a young boy and he is a part of this uh, refurnishing, re-beautification of the Babylonian temple to the god Marduk. So for the next 10 years, his father fought the Assyrians while Nebuchadnezzar grew up and he received his education in military matters as well as general literacy, government administration. He was brewed to be a king. In 615, Nebuchadnezzar married the princess of Persia, Amethyst, and it was a political move, and it paid off because it was Nebuchadnezzar's marriage to the princess of Persia that united the Babylonian army and the Persian army to take on the Assyrian army and destroy the Ninevites in 612 BC. His childhood, his marriage, they were all strategic in making him into the villain that he became. Once crowned king, it wasn't enough that Nebuchadnezzar was just the most powerful man on the planet. He wanted to be the most beautiful, and he wanted Babylon to be the most beautiful. By 600, Babylon was considered the center of the world. Yes, by the Babylonians themselves, but also from other cultures. Uh, there's a clay tablet that was dating back to this time. It was discovered in the ruins of a city called Zubar, which is north of Babylon. And on this clay tablet, which is actually in the British Museum to this day, uh, it pictures the world uh, revolving around Babylon. Babylon is, is the center. Even in the ancient world, people outside of Babylon said, Babylon's the center. The great temples and monuments there, they were beautified like nothing else. The walls of Babylon, they were de decorated with over 120 different lions and dragons, bowls and flowers. Uh, the Ishtar Gate, uh, it was made of, of blue bricks and stone. Uh, it's in the museum in Berlin to this day. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar is quoted as saying, I placed wild bulls and ferocious dragons in the gateways and thus adorned them with luxurious splendor, that people might gaze on them in wonder. The walls of Babylon and the gate of Ishtar were so incredible that many think they should be considered into the seven great wonders of the ancient world. They're not, but the hanging gardens of Babylon are, which he created. He said that his wife missed her home native country of Persia so much that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, created these hanging gardens with the plants that grew in her native country just for his wife. So he created one of the wonders of the ancient world as a grand gesture to his wife. Husbands, what have you done for your girl lately? <laughs> he was the most powerful man on the planet. Other leaders have had more territory, but none had the absolute power that Nebuchadnezzar had. Not only was it everything he said law, but in ancient Babylonia, th there's documents that attest to that even his thoughts are law. Not just words he says, not just things he writes down, but even his thinking becomes law for the world. Babylon was the world power. Israel was nothing. Babylon was New York City. Israel was Dinuba. <laughs> Okay? Babylon was the, one of the most beautiful, advanced, influential places in the world, and every single one of us still benefits from Babylon. Uh, what time is it? Does anyone, who has the time on them? Yeah, yeah. Yes, you keep track of time because of Babylon. They are the ones who uh, created the measurement of 60 
by, of which we do all of our time measurements. You can tell time because of the Babylonians. Every watch, every clock, every cell phone, we owe it to the advancement of the Babylonian Empire. This was Nebuchadnezzar, okay? He's a big deal. That's what history says about him. What does the Bible say about him? Actually, quite a bit. Uh, he's mentioned by name almost a hundred times. And I'm just going to try and rattle through all these. I might not get through all these. These are just like six. Here we go. Second Kings 24. At that time, the officers of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, advanced on Jerusalem and laid siege to it. Second Chronicles. He brought up against them the king of Bab the Babylonians who killed their young men with the sword in the sanctuary, did not spare young men or young women, the elderly or the infirm. God gave them all into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. Jeremiah 21. Inquire now of the Lord for us, because Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, is attacking us. Jeremiah 50. Israel is a scattered flock that lions have chased away. The first to devour them was the king of Assyria. The last to crush their bones was Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And finally, Jeremiah 51. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has devoured us. He has thrown us into confusion. He has made us an empty jar. Like a serpent, he has swallowed us and filled his stomach with our delicacies and then has spewed us out. This is Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And that's just a small sampling. The Bible says a whole bunch about him. What did he do, God's people? What did he do to them to make him such a hateful figure in the Old Testament? Well, he sieged the capital city of Jerusalem. And he deported most of all of Israel to Babylon, where they lived for 70 years in exile. Uh, everything they ever knew, gone. The temple where they worshipped the Lord, gone. They saw friends and family die at the hands of the Babylonian army. Now, Jewish rabbinic tradition says that when he deports Israel to Babylon, he so fears God because of the way God has protected Judah in the past. He so fears God that he refuses to let Israel rest at all while they walk the 500 miles to Babylon. So countless died on the journey. He says, if they were to, if they were to stop, I fear that they would offer sacrifices to God and God would intervene and rescue them. He's brutal people of God spent the next 70 years in exile. He's a bad guy, right? He's a villain. He's up to all evil, up to no good, right? Au contraire. See, the, the pain of separation from home runs through many books of the Bible, resulting in some of its most beautiful passages. Uh, have you ever, have you ever broken off a branch and, and then when you snapped it, there's like this fragrance that comes out of the branch. Certain trees have it. That there, that there is a fragrance. There is something beautiful within that can only be discovered when it's broken. This is true for the nation of Israel in exile in Babylon. Actually, Ezekiel in the Bible cast Nebuchadnezzar as a great eagle with great wings and long pinions, rich in plumage of many colors. And he says, The eagle king is presented as an instrument of God who carries away the Jews and plants them as a seedling in fertile soil, a plant by abundant waters. He set it like a willow twig. See, the experience profoundly shaped Jewish religious and national identity. So Ezekiel doesn't take it as, man, that villain Nebuchadnezzar takes us. No, no, no. He's seen as an eagle 
who takes Israel out of the infertile soil in Jerusalem and plants them in the center of the known world for them to grow even larger. Because of exile, the people of Israel changed. Because of exile, the Jewish faith changed. And it changed in several ways, and I'm just going to highlight a few. Okay, first, no temple, no problem. Okay, this is like the, the, you know, you go to the beach, what's it say in all the stores? No shoes, no shirt, no service. Um, This is like that, I guess. No temple, no problem. No temple, no problem. See, like most Middle Eastern people, the Jews had their religious identity tied to this temple. And the Bible tells us, the Bible told them that there's only one place where they can offer sacrifices on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And now, to this present day, the, the, the dome of the Muslim, uh, dome of the rock is, is there. So that's why the Jews aren't offering, offering sacrifices. And so it's destroyed so they can no longer offer sacrifices. They can't do uh, any of the temple rituals. And since the Jews now lacked both a temple and the ability to go to Jerusalem, necessary changes had to be had in their own faith and how they worked out their faith. And this, the result of this was the rise of the synagogue. The, the Jews began to meet weekly, not in the temple. It was destroyed. It was hundreds of miles away, but rather together with families and communities. The, sh- the focus shifted from animal sacrifice to studying and learning Jewish Torah, the books of the Bible. It became the focal point of worship. Uh, there's this term called, when, uh, uh, when the Jews went into exile, it's called the diaspora. It means the scattering. It's, it's when the Jews all left Jerusalem unintentionally, but then just scattered. And actually, when they were eventually brought back 70 years later, only 10% went. They were, they were free to go back to Jerusalem. And 90% to go, we kind of like it here in Babylon. And they stayed, and they went all throughout the empire. Because of exile, it became, their faith became less about a place and more about how we live, not where we live. It's not about our tribe in our country. It's about where, how we live, no matter where we live. Same is true for us. Number two, it cured Israel of idolatry. Now, the Jews always look to other nations and struggle with idolatry. But when they come back from exile, it's as if something changes. They never struggled with idolatry the way they, the way they did in all of the previous passages in the Old Testament. Uh, they struggled at times, but it was never to the same degree. It's as if that when they spent those seven years in Babylon, and they got this front row seat to this worship of the god of Marduk, this Babylonian god— that they're like, no, no, that's not us. That's, that's not who we're called to be. And it put things in perspective, and it rid them of idolatry. And finally, it renewed their passion for the scriptures. Uh, some of the most wonderful and long-lasting uh, Jewish literature comes out of exile. Uh, the, the Babylonian Talmud is a commentary on all of the, the Torah— and it's actually used in Jewish worship practices to this day. And it was written while in exile in Babylon. So it is possible to see Nebuchadnezzar not as the captor, but the rescuer. 
Isn't that amazing that you have this villain, this bad guy, where all of Israel would agree that this is a bad guy doing a bad thing, and somehow God still uses it to bring about goodness in the world? Isn't that just insane? And he still does this. He does this. Uh, Now, the only way to ship fresh North Atlantic cod from Boston, where they have great seafood, uh, to San Francisco— was in, in the, during the 19th century, was to sail around the South American continent, okay? The Panama Canal wasn't there. And so that trip took months. And so, as you can imagine, the first attempts to dress the cod, put it on ice from the Atlantic, and then take it all the way down through South America up to San Francisco. By the time it arrived, the fish was inedible, okay? You couldn't eat it. It was gross. The next attempt, they go, let's put them in a, like an aquarium-type tank. So they get the fresh cod from the Atlantic near Boston, put them in this tank in the boat, and then they go sail all the way down South America up to San Francisco. But the fish, it, it didn't taste great. Uh, they, they didn't get much exercise. They were pasty, relatively tasteless, they said. Finally, someone suggested, why don't we put some catfish in with the cod? And that was a wild idea because catfish are a natural predator, enemy of these cod. But sure enough, when a few catfish were placed in this tank, as they made the trip all the way down around South America, the catfish kept the cod moving, escaping. When they reached San Francisco, they were in perfect shape. Sometimes it is in the midst of hostile surroundings that we preserve what's good inside of us. Sometimes it is in the middle of great difficulty that the goodness inside of us arises. Some, smooth seas don't make skillful sailors. And we learn the strength of the anchor not in times where the waves are calm. We learn the strength of the anchor in the midst of the storm. Do you believe that God can use the bad things in your life for good? I know it to be true. He'll use your brokenness to heal you. He'll use your failure to restore you. He'll use your hearts, your hurts of the past to give you a hope in the future. That's what our God does. Nothing is wasted. There is nothing in your life that God can't revive. That person who said the most hurtful and hateful thing, God can use that situation to reaffirm in you what matters most. If God can redeem the purposes of a violent pagan king named Nebuchadnezzar, he can redeem the ill will that you have been exposed to. And I know you've been exposed to some ill will. I know you have. It wasn't your fault. You did get the shaft. You got the bad end of the deal. You didn't deserve it. And something terrible happened to you. Someone else did something horrible to you. God can still redeem it. God didn't do it, but God can still use it. What the enemy means for evil, God means for good. And the story just gets crazier with Nebuchadnezzar, okay? He actually writes down his testimony. He has this testimony experience. Like, he has this amazing encounter with God, and then he writes it down. When I was a youth pastor, and we would go down to Mexico, or we'd go to Malawi, we'd go to these different places, we'd have our teenagers kind of write down their testimony, write, write down their story of, of their interactions with God and how God's changed their lives, how they met Jesus, etc. And it was always a, a struggle for them just to kind of write it down, because we wanted them to share it. It's terrifying. 
In the Bible, we have Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. This pagan king writes part of the Bible. It's found in Daniel 4, okay? This villain, Nebuchadnezzar. It's as if he rips the pen away from Daniel, and he's like, hey, 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 let me tell the story. And he tells the story. Daniel 4, check this out. We're going to be a little bit of reading here, but I think it's worth it. It says this. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home. He already introduces himself. I'm the king. I'm the king of the known world, most powerful guy. Yeah, I killed Judah. I destroyed the temple of Yahweh. I know I'm a bad guy, and I'm also writing a book of the Bible right now. Here he goes. Was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. Is that many of us, by the way? I think. I was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in my bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to, inter to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, diviners came, I told them the dream, but they couldn't interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came to my presence, and I told him the dream. Now, before we get into this dream, this is not the first time Nebuchadnezzar has a dream and wants someone to explain it to him in the book of Daniel. Um, it actually happens quite a bit, and uh, th the first time it happens, he gets all violent. Like, they're like, dude, we don't get it. Like, we're trying to interpret it for you, but we can't. He's like, kill them all. I'm going to kill everybody until someone tells me this dream. He, he gets violent. He gets hateful. And here, Nebuchadnezzar is telling the story, and there's not one hint of violence. There's no anger. It's as if he's growing, or perhaps God is moving even inside this pagan king. So here's the dream. There's this tree, uh, and a messenger says from heaven, cut the tree down, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze and let it remain in the ground. And then let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live among the animals. And let his mind change from that of a man into that of an animal until I pass him by seven times. This is to show that the Lord Most High has dominion over all. That's the dream. So the king summons everybody. Nobody can interpret it. And so then the king tells Daniel, Daniel, this is the dream. Tells it just like it is. And uh, Daniel's like, mm-hmm. And he's like, tell me. And Daniel's like, well, you're not going to like it. If this was about one of your enemies, I'd be happy to tell you. But it's not about your enemies. And he's like, give it to me straight. And Daniel goes, okay. You're that tree. And you will be cut down, and you will be forced to live as an animal among plants and animals until you acknowledge that heaven rules. So please, your majesty, repent. He refuses. Look at verse 28. All this happened to the king. Twelve months later, it's a full year. Daniel tells him the dream. This is what's going to happen. You're going to live like an animal. You're going to go a little bit cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. You're going to be, you know, out in the wild with, with, with other animals. And uh, it's so that you get humbled. And he's like, hard pass. A year goes by. He thinks he gets away with it. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, is not this great? Is this not, is not what, is not this, he stuttered, okay, English was his second language, he spoke Akkadian, English was Nebuchadnezzar's second language, is not this the great Babylon, 
I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken away from you. You will be driven away from the people, and you will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. The most powerful man on the planet becomes a beast of the field. God's almost toying with him, right? Like, it's kind of like, say uncle for seven years, right? And it took him a long time to say uncle. Did you know that God still sends Daniels to us? He will send you Daniels. What are Daniels? They are things that t- are there to tell you that you're not in charge. You think you're in charge, or you want to be in charge, but you're not. Maybe a Daniel brought you to church today. Because God's using them to show that you're not in charge. These events, these dreams, these are the Daniels in our lives. And they're telling us, among other things, that you're not in charge. God says to Nebuchadnezzar, Because you insisted on becoming more than what I made you to be, you will become less than you were made to be. Because you aspire to become more than a man, you will be less than a man. You're not in charge. That's what he says. He says, hey, hey, king of the world, you're not in charge. This was God's message to Nebuchadnezzar. And this is God's message to you and I this morning. Pride, it's this easy, it's so easy to see in others, and it's so hard to see in a mirror, right? Like others are egotistical, we're self-confident. Others are vain, we're well-dressed. Others are arrogant, we're just right. Others are demanding, we're pursuing excellence. Others are snobbish. We're introverted. Others are conceited. We're secure. We're confident. See, pride does a number on the the spiritual retina. And sometimes it takes some drastic circumstances to humble us, to show you're not in charge. And that's what it took for Nebuchadnezzar. Took him a while to say, uncle. But let's look at 34. Again, I can't believe he wrote scripture. Um, Verse 34, at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, I raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Let's just stop there for a second. That's all it took. That's all it took. It doesn't say that he had a clear prayer of repentance. It doesn't say that he offered sacrifices to God. It doesn't say that he went to church. It didn't say that he gave God his money. All he did was he lifted his eyes toward heaven, and then his, his sanity was restored. Sometimes that's all it takes. Have you ever been in that place of just like, God, and you can't even voice anything? Your spirit looking up is enough. For God to answer. You don't even have to articulate it. He says, Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. 
His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just and those who walk in pride he is able to humble preach it neb that's a villain right there and he's preaching to himself but he's preaching to you and he's preaching to me i want to invite knowing the band to come up and we'll close with this song here's this villain who wrote a part of scripture whose horrible violence God still used to bring about beauty, truth, and goodness in the people of Israel and in our world. And in Nebuchadnezzar, we find a prideful villain who is in charge of the whole world. And he was humbled because he was in thought, he thought that he was in charge of the whole world. I love the Bible. <laughs> I love that God uses the villains in us. And I don't know who it is for you, but just this week one of villains here, you know, last week we had a primer to this. We op- hopefully you opened up your Bibles, you looked at Jonah 4, and you thought about that enemy. Let's, if you didn't last week, let's try it again this week. Who are those people? I might encounter some in my 20-year reunion coming up. Uh, what can God redeem in your life? The nation of Israel, one of the greatest tragedy, tragedies that ever happened to them, 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon destroys Jerusalem. It's terrible. Even in Lamentations, you can read of what takes place when they sieged Jerusalem and what happens inside the city as they cut off food supply and water supply and people are dying, people are resulting in, resorting to, to cannibalism. It is horrendous. This king did that to them. And not just to Israel, but he did it to lots of tribes, lots of peoples, lots of cities, lots of children. And God still somehow used that to purify the faith of Israel. That it became less about the place, more about how they live. Less about a temple, more about the presence that resided inside the temple. what, What is God teaching you through your terrible circumstances, whatever it is. Whatever it was and whatever it is, what, God, what, what might God want to redeem out of that? Because it's something. He's a God who brings about beauty amidst chaos. Even the contrast between the Babylonian creation account and the Genesis creation account. Here's the stark contrast. Every tribe had their, had their story of how the world began. The Babylonians, chaos, violence brought the world. No, but not Genesis, not Yahweh. Out of that, out of the expansion, God spoke and brought order and goodness and beauty, and it was good. It's different. It's a different story. We tell a different story. We live a different story. Ours is a story of hope not despair. Ours is a story of light instead of darkness. Ours is a story of peace instead of violence. Ours is a story of redemption. 
So God, I pray in Jesus' name that you would speak to us, lead us, redeem all the negative stuff that has happened, that villains have brought on our own lives. Redeem it for good. Give us eyes to see that. Give us a heart that works towards that. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we declare the goodness of our Father? Oh, I've heard a thousand stories of what they think you like, but I've heard the tender whispers of love in the dead of night, and you tell me that you're pleased and that I'm never alone you're a good good father it's who you are it's who you are it's who you are and I'm loved by you it's who I am it's who I am it's who I am Searching for answers far and wide, but I know we're all searching for answers. Only you provide, cause you know just what we need before we say your word. You're a good, good father. It's who you are, we sing. It's who you are, it's who you are, and I'm loved by you. It's who I am, it's who I am. Come on, let's sing that again. You're a good, good father. It's who you are, it's who you are, it's who you are, and I'm loved by you. It's who I am. It's who I am, it's who I am, because you are perfect in all of your ways. You are perfect in all of your ways. Yes, you are, you are perfect in all of your ways to us. Come on, let's sing that one more time. You are oh, you are in all of your ways. 